This is The Guardian. I've always had this other job doing the legal research, which I enjoy quite a lot, actually. It's given me independent freedom as a writer, as a journalist, and I can take my time with each book. So even the last book, which is a, quite a short book, you can read it in one sitting, took me four years. I don't have to sell a certain number of books or sign on to two or three volumes or anything like that. Imagine you're an author and you've had multiple books published, but you still need to have a day job to make ends meet. What does it mean to be successful as a writer if you can't make a living from it? Hi, I'm Zoya Patel, and this is Book It In, the podcast where we have conversations with top authors about the ideas that shape their work. In this episode, I talked to writer Alice Pong. She is a prolific and award-winning author who's basically done it all. She's written memoir, young adult fiction, and essays. And her first book, Unpolished Gem, was a memoir. It was about her experiences as a child of Chinese-Cambodian refugees growing up in Melbourne. Her latest book, 100 Days, is a young adult novel, exploring the often fraught relationship between mothers and daughters. I'm so excited to talk to Alice who I viewed as a bit of a role model for myself as another writer of colour, who often unpacks themes around gender and race through her work as well. But Alice and I also share something else as writers. While we both have published books and have established careers as authors, we also both work in industries completely separate to the literary world to make the money that we need to be able to fund our writing and our lives more broadly. I spoke to Alice for Book It In about what makes writing work and how the experience of being an author can be unique when you're also a person of colour and a woman. Well, it is so nice to be catching up, Alice, and I know it's virtual, um, but it's still just fantastic. I think the last time that I would have seen you would have been pre-COVID at a festival, probably like 2018. So the world has definitely changed quite a lot since then. Yes. (laughs) How's your dad going, by the way? I I love hearing those questions from people who have either read my book or heard me talk about him. He's going well. (laughs) I feel like we know your dad. He's so funny. Well, I guess I feel like I know your dad, um, obviously, through all of your writing. So we probably have that in common. And I feel like you've touched on actually one of the key things that I was really keen to chat to you about, because I don't know about you, but I don't actually get that many opportunities to talk to another writer from a culturally diverse background um, who might have had some of the kind of um, experiences or challenges that I've had in navigating becoming a writer or choosing this as something that we do. And um, one thing that kind of struck me when I was reading, rereading some of your essays and some of your works is just that kind of pressure that um, you have when you come to Australia as a migrant or you're a second gen migrant, you're born to migrants, um, to have a career that's considered safe and secure and that will 100%, you know, keep you clothed and fed and, and in housing. And so I wondered, was writing ever an option that you thought would kind of tick those boxes, whether for your family or even for yourself? Oh, no, no. And um, I was really sick about it, to be honest, Sawyer. So I, um, because I'm a bit older, um, so I started 15 years ago and back then there weren't that many um, career opportunities that I could see 
uh, for a writer, not for a journalist, but for a writer. Yeah. Australia's market is so small and also being a writer of colour, as we call it now, back then we were called ethnic writers, <laughs> your readership was presumably other ethnic writers or writers of colour. So that's an even smaller, smaller audience. And some of your audience um, don't buy your book. They borrow it from the library due to economic circumstances. So I thought there's, there's no way I can make a living out of this. you know. <laughs> so I was practical about it, yeah, from the onset. And your practical approach was obviously to study law uh, and have this whole other career as well that you maintain to, you know, to today as well. Yeah, I do. So I work three days a week as a legal researcher and the rest of the time I try and write if I can. <laughs> but I've got three kids, so I don't have that much time to write these days. You are definitely juggling quite a few different hats there, absolutely. But when I was thinking about this um, and, you know, considering what we would chat about, I was reflecting on the fact that I don't actually know many other writers aside from you and me uh, who work in jobs that demand quite a lot of their time um, and that might be kind of in a professional industry quite separate to the writing that they do and still write. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I often feel as though having another source of income is almost seen as a detraction from your validity as a writer. Like a real writer writes all the time and it's their full-time occupation and that's all they do. And, you know, friends will say things like, do you make money from your books? Do you, you know, can your book actually help you pay rent or pay a mortgage or any of those things? Because that is one of the ways that people ascribe value to success, right? Is whether or not you make money. Yeah. Have you... <laughs> Have you come across that at all? And and how does your family see that as a um, as an occupation? Is it kind of culturally um, understood for you uh, with your family as well? I know so many writers who have other jobs, not just um, you know writers like us. But Christos Tiolkas was a um, veterinary assistant until only a few years back, and Melina Maketa was a high school teacher, you know, um, even Tony Wilson, who is as Australian as they get. So I always assumed that if you were writing, you'd have another career. Andy Griffiths as well, who is just crazy, you know, <laughs> famous. The children love him now and he can do it full time. So that was part and parcel of being an Australian writer, not even necessarily an immigrant writer or a writer of colour. So I've never had a problem with that. Um, writers need to make a living. And I, I find it a wonderful thing because this, you know, in 15 years I know a lot more writers who are um, almost full-time now of a younger generation than um, otherwise would have impossible 15 years ago one of my mentors was a wonderful and still is a wonderful playwright and um, speculative fiction writer name named Hua Pham and she was a psychologist uh, back then so I had all these um, mentors that also had you know <laughs> had pretty demanding jobs so yeah writing I always saw as my side thing the same thing as uh, what Ando did with his comedy was a side gig until he could make a lot of money out of it on television. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's always a goal, isn't it, is to um, if there's a natural path out of your passion being your side thing to being your whole thing, that's amazing. But I guess the risk associated with maybe not having that financial security is something that a lot of the writers that you've mentioned and certainly I share, um, that fear of having, uh, I guess, our livelihoods um, taken away from us because so much of writing is kind of at the whims of other people, um, you know, whether 
you're chosen to be published or whether your editor likes your work, et cetera, et cetera. You said earlier that, you know, when you were younger and thinking about writing, you always knew that it wasn't going to be something that would um, maybe catapult you to fame being in Australia because the market's so small. When you were deciding to write memoir as your first book, did you think, you know, memoir is an even smaller market within an already small market? And then also telling stories um, like yours about your type of um, background and your type of journey that could also be considered quite niche. Were these things that you ever kind of contemplated in terms of what that meant for your success? Oh, Zoya, you know, that <laughs> I'm so glad to be talking to you because you're so intelligent and so um, uh what do you call it, insightful and also savvy, which I I was none of those things when I was starting out. I was pretty naive um, and I also didn't know anything about the publishing world, hey, because I didn't have any author friends besides Hua Pham and Tom Cho who actually had to move to Canada because Australia was so uh, rigid in its uh, way of dealing with uh, transgendered writers at that time they wanted them to write memoir so back to this memoir thing I just wrote a bunch of family stories and they weren't about myself to be honest about other family members and uncles and things um and I had a wonderful editor who worked with me for five years uh without a contract we I just sent him short stories and he looked over them and and asked for more so I thought essentially it was a book of stories but he helped me string them together in some kind of chronological order and then when it was published, it was marketed as memoir because memoir was huge at that time, especially for authors like me. Uh, it was on the back of stories like Wild Swans and Falling Leaves and, you know, all the memoirs from communist China and um, oppressive patriarchal Korea. So, <laughs> so yeah, so the, the marketing team said that that kind of thing was was hot commodity. Even Nam Lee wrote a little parody um, not a little parody, but this magnificent parody story about how memoir was a hot commodity in the very first story of his book, The Boat. So it was big back then. So that, that's why it got published and marketed as a memoir. I had no idea how to do these things. So I just trusted um, my editors and my, my publicists and they did a wonderful job. So no, I wasn't that smart. <laughs> I find that in itself quite complicated though, because like you said, there are these market forces that are driving a certain kind of appetite yes. in publishers for that type uh -huh. of work. But then on the flip side of that, it can feel like there's a lot of pressure to always produce the story of immigrant struggle or of trauma, of um, overcoming, you know, adversity, because that's what an audience kind of wants to lap up. Did you feel that at all? It sounds like the story writing for you has been quite organic. These are stories that you wanted to tell anyway. Um, and then, you know, maybe the way that they were perceived by a publisher or the way that they were marketed um, fed into a certain um, stereotype or a, a kind of set of ideas about the immigrant story, but that wasn't the intention with which you wrote it. Have you felt like there's still a pressure to produce that kind of work? Oh, always, Zoya. And I did push back, even though it was, you know, relatively, I wasn't that naive or that young. Um, but I, you know, I, I had a trustful relationship with my publisher still to this day, it's been 20 years. So I felt I could push back because the first sentence of my first book was, this story does not begin on a boat. So even back then, 
I was pretty fed up with these migrant narratives of success as the only way we could venture forward in literature. So I deliberately set out to write this anti-immigrant success story, you know, about the Aussie battler, that the Aussie battler was an outworking mum. And um, I deliberately set out to write a funny book. And then Benjamin Law wrote a funny book. And then all of a sudden, Asian Australians could be funny instead of miserable, <laughs> which is a wonderful thing when Benjamin Law came on the scene. Um, so the very first sentence of Unpolished Gem was this story does not begin on a boat to set the scene that it's an Australian book. But when the first cover came out, Zoya, so I got a choice between three and usually publishers, the bigger ones don't even give you a choice. They send it to the marketing team and come back, you know, <laughs> with something that they hope you'll approve. Um, so the first two had patterns on the cover, um, like wallpaper. And the third one, which I really liked, was black and white with a picture of a girl who was sitting on a bed in a darkened room, an Asian girl who was 10 years old, looking glum. And speaking of dads, my dad saw the cover and he said, that can't be the cover of your book. I said, yeah, it's pretty bad, isn't it, dad? My dad said, it's not only bad, it's terrible. It looks like that little girl is a victim of childhood sexual assault, you know, and we don't want that on the cover of your book. And I looked at it and I thought, that is so true because at the same time there were those books um, about childhood sexual assault with little girls sitting on the cover. So it looked like the Asian version of, of those books. Yeah. And um, so I asked my publishers if they could, like, redo the cover because it looks kind of like childhood sexual. It looks bad, you know, like those books. Um, and so that's how they came up with the iconic orange cover that's, you know, been in print for 15 years. But also the blurb um, was three generations of Chinese women and their joys and sufferings and struggles, that kind of blurb. Hey? And I, yeah. I asked my editor, I said, can I have a go rewriting this? Can, can I? And usually... Now it's done by teams of marketers and they perfect it. But back then we were running off the smell of an oily rag. He said, yeah, give it your best shot. So I started off with this story does not begin on a boat. It doesn't have wild swans or falling leaves and, you know, to, to flag that this is meant to be a funny book. And I was so lucky you know, that, that they trusted my judgment and not many first-time authors get that. They get intimidated or they get talked into accepting a cover with their face on it because they've got like a brown face or a lovely yellow face. So, yeah, yeah you, you have to sometimes push back. <laughs> I love that you said that because I got asked when my book was coming out, which is a memoir as well. To have your um, face? Well, no, they said to me, the way they presented it to me was, tell us what you don't want on a cover. Um, oh. before we go through this process of developing a cover. And I thought, oh, well, that's awesome. Like I generally don't have much of a like um, visual aesthetic. I don't really care about things like that that much. I mean, I'm sure everyone says this until it's their book and then they really, really yeah. care. Um, but the one thing I said was I don't want my face on the cover and I don't want anything Indian. Like I don't want sari prints. I don't oh, want peacocks. Yeah. I don't want elephants. elephants. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and good on you. I think I had that same visceral reaction though, Alice, which is what it sounds like you had, to not be pigeonholed into this idea of what our stories are, but yes. to have the opportunity to actually just tell those stories and have them taken for what they are. And I wonder if you were conscious at that time that by writing the story that you wanted to tell the way that you wanted to tell it, you were actually doing something that's quite rebellious and almost revolutionary in the context because instead of kind of feeling like you should just be grateful to be published at all, 
you were able to push against the kind of prevailing narrative of what your story should look like. Do you feel like that's still the case now? I mean, the work that you're producing now, even so many years later, is very much pushing against the kind of expectation of what stories like that should be. So, you know, reading your recent novel, um, 100 Days, I was really struck by how you create these characters that are super complicated um, in this mother and daughter that are grappling with each other constantly. And it is not the kind of traditional story that you expect of a mother and daughter coping with a, a circumstance that's so outside of what they expected because they it isn't a straightforward linear relationship of nurturing and love. There's anger, there's um, there's violence, there's fierce passion and loyalty while also being really, really difficult um, in a lot of ways to witness. So you're still kind of pushing the line on how people see Asian women, on how people see um, mother-daughter relationships, on, you know, all of those different levels. Is it just something that you find you want to do when you write to kind of challenge these ideas? Oh, Sawyer, thank you so much for <laughs> reading my book and, and for really getting it. I, I love that, you know, that that readers um, like you get it and they don't just see the mother as like a tiger mother because obviously she's illiterate so she can, you know, <laughs> her focus isn't on schoolwork, it's on her beautiful daughter. Um, I don't set out deliberately to to write against the grain because then you just have a contrarian story that's the opposite and, and the characters wouldn't have a heartbeat, they'd just be an assemblage of quirks. You've, you've seen feisty feminist stories like that where the young adult heroine is just a collection of um, you know, politically correct quirks. And no, I wanted real characters um, who were grappling with real issues uh, and who I would have known in my uh, childhood and adolescence because I had friends <laughs> exactly like the characters described um, dealing with similar circumstances. So I think that's what gives it its edge of reality, um, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Because publishers are very white and very middle class and mostly they're women in, in publishing firms and they have the best of intentions and they have very liberal views but sometimes they don't move outside um, certain circles. So they have ideas about what diversity should be and I'm lucky I've been with the same publisher for um, 20 years so they let me publish a book like 100 days basically free reign to you know <laughs> to to write and I started it as a YA book I make no bones about it in every interview I say this is for a 16 year old girl not not any specific one but you know I had a 16 year old in mind um, because a lot of the readers if you read Goodreads reviews which I do because I love it they're honest a lot of the um, Anglo readers will say um in their criticism, this is not a book for children because it depicts abuse and it's severe emotional and to some extent physical abuse, you know, <laughs> and um, there is nothing at the end that says this is not okay. But to the the people who read this, like Zoya um, from a family like mine, it's more complicated than that, yeah? It's a working class mum who's doing the best she can. So, you know, the, the industry is uh, polarised. You've got well-intentioned people who want to publish your work, but sometimes they'll say, oh, you've got to change this or that because this depicts abuse and young adults don't need, you need to have a lesson in that. Um, so <laughs> I've just been lucky to have been allowed to, to use a voice I have 
Uh, but I'm not a debut author. So basically, my books have sold well. I can write anything I want and they will still sell well. A debut author with a similar voice to mine might not get published because they'll say, oh, that's too gritty. That's too, you know, <laughs> yeah. But I do, so you asked a great question. I do get asked a lot, um, and I'm sure you do, to write endorsements for books from publishers that are migrant narrative stories. And when I read them, sometimes I think, oh, this this poor young author has been um, had their, their story sucked out of them because they're of an ethnicity that's never been published before, whether they're Iranian or Afghan or Sudanese. Or, and the stories are very much shaped by the publisher and even the covers, you know, Fatima's story or, <laughs> yeah. Do, do you know what I mean, Abraham's story? 100%. Oh, good. And I feel so sorry because two years later you see those books in the $10 pile and I think you can't suck the life out of someone just to sell a book like that. I think also, though, it says something about the kind of longevity that's being given to these authors' careers because yes. if yeah. the only story you're worthy of writing or, or the only story you're considered to have is your own story, well, yeah. there's an obvious limit on that, isn't there? You, you, get, you reach a point where you've told your story and what else is there, whereas... I feel like part of what I was really conscious of, so I my story is kind of interesting, Alice, in that I had a novel and this idea for a memoir. And when we went around shopping these ideas, I had an offer from one publisher on the novel, but not the memoir. And then one publisher offered on the memoir, not the novel. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and in the end, I went with the, the publisher that offered on the memoir because I really wanted to work with them. And now they'll be publishing the novel as well in a couple of years, which is great. But at the time, I remember thinking to myself, well, what if they take the memoir and then that's it, you know, because you're right, memoirs do sell. Yeah. And memoirs are big. People want to read real stories and that's, you know, really fascinating to the average reader and it's a great hook for a debut author as well as to say, well, yeah. this is a true story. But there's something really demoralising about that and quite um, demeaning in a way to think that the the angle for selling a diverse writer is that this is a story you've never heard before and it's one that's really different from yours. You know, that's the proposition to the reader. But what about the stories that we can imagine and that we can create with our words and the worlds that we can build, you know, just by sheer talent? You know, those are also things that we have to offer. I feel as though you've really kind of, um, in many ways, I look up to the way that you've managed your career, Alice, because you've dabbled across different genres and you've done it in a way that hasn't detracted from your overall career or the the place that you hold um, in the in the broader literary landscape either. You know, you've written YA, you've written literary fiction, you've written memoir, you've written creative nonfiction, um, essays. There's such a wealth of talent there. Um, but the core theme that does seem to run through all of them are that you are interested in telling these stories that are on the margins. They're stories that don't typically get told. I guess, how do you reconcile that desire to have uh, a breadth of work um, and to keep publishing, but then, and to write about the things that you want to write about, but then to not be pigeonholed as, you know, the writer who writes about migrants or the writer who writes about these types of characters? Is that ever something that you kind of grapple with? 
Uh, like, to be honest, Sawyer, not really, because I don't have that diverse talent, so I wouldn't venture into science fiction or true crime or something. Um, do you know what I mean? That's so outside of my experience that I would be judged, or, like people would say, oh, but she's gone, you know, she, she writes migrant stories. I don't really mind. All my stories about immigrants or <laughs> people in the western suburbs, the, um, you know, the, the working class, I, I yeah, I, I write what I like and I really don't, <laughs> I don't think of the audience except um, the audience that matters to me, which is mostly y- young adults, to be honest, because they're the letters that mean the most. <laughs> I hope that makes sense to you. Does that- it is refreshingly independent and I, I love that. Um, that's 100% how I want to channel uh, my own energy. But I have to say, Alice, I do find it much harder than you clearly find it to, I guess, not listen to the voices that kind of creep up in the back of your mind that say, you know, if you keep writing about diverse characters, will you ever reach a mainstream audience? Or how many people are going to read this book if it keeps being about, you know, people like you who who just don't represent that majority? Um, do you, Is that ever something that you worry about or is that not, not something that figures in? Oh, maybe when I was younger, Sawyer, like in my 20s, but then I discovered I had this readership that was quite um quite loyal like you know young adults or even um some older Australians so I I I write the characters I do because I I want um 16 year old Asian girls to read and I don't care if 45 year old white men don't read the you know I I really don't care (laughs) I write for the people I write for I, I hope that makes sense that makes so much sense. And I kind of want to, I want to know more about your readers. Um, what are some of the uh, interactions that you've had with readers that have kind of solidified this, um, this commitment in your mind? You sound so certain um, of who you write for, but also what you want to write and what factors you'll take into consideration when it comes to writing what you want to write. And I want to loop back to this, um, to our earlier conversation around financial security too. But first of all, what are some of the interactions that you've had that have helped to kind of define that certainty for you, that have shown you that the impact that you want to make is with that, you know, demographic of young women, young Asian women who maybe don't have that much to see themselves in when it comes to the literature that they consume? Oh, that that's an excellent question because I have a really recent story that relates to this. A, a young, um, young woman I met at a writer's festival emailed me out of the blue just two months ago um, and she's still in university, but she needed help with something. I'm not sure whether she knew that I had this other background as a legal advice. I don't think she knew. Um, that, that's how, you know, stratified Australia is. That, but, but she had a parent who did factory work and he got into an accident and the factory was giving him much mischief um, and saying that he, he wasn't eligible for, you know, just... Um, and, and she'd accompany him to appointments, medical appointments, and, and see the um, the disbelief in people's eye. Like he'd been working there for, for decades, but they thought he was trying to rip off the system. And she said, I don't know who to contact. I don't know anyone who can help me with this, except one of your characters in your book is is a man who work in, is a dad who works in a factory. So do you know what I should do about that? <laughs> That's how we struck 
up this email correspondence and friendship. And I thought, wow, this fictional character that <laughs> works in a factory has connected me to this young woman in a different state and her problems with her family working in factories. So um, when you write real characters like that, they have real life consequences. So that's why I don't care that, um, you know, <laughs> uh, that's the person I write for because it, it does make a, a concrete difference. I hope that makes sense. That's such a beautiful story and it's just so lovely. It's almost like gives you goosebumps to think about it. But obviously it's also part of me that feels so sad that, you know, there weren't other immediate obvious supports available to her. But how lucky that she landed in your inbox. Um, that is actually one of those things where it really reminds you of the power of of literature and community building and kind of creating those connections. I actually will always remember Alice, somebody who I um, was very good friends with at the time, but probably didn't interact with that much, gifted me Lorinda, um, one of your novels. Um, it's a beautiful YA book that I adored. And she gifted it to me at a time when I was going through some relatively challenging growing pains with my family and my independence, early 20s. Um, figuring out what I wanted to do, um, navigating that cultural difference. And I devoured your book. Um, and it was one of the first times that I'd read a story, even though, you know, I was in my early 20s, um, Lorinda is set in largely a high school. There were some obvious differences, but that sense of loyalty to family, the kind of complicated relationship that you have with your family when everything is so mesh together and you don't have a lot of money. And so the way that you rely on each other is more than just a relationship. It's actually about your entire life being en entwined with these people, right? Because yes. without each oh. of you doing your part, you don't get fed that night or, you know, any small thing can kind of tip off the balance. And I remember reading it and it really made me feel, it reminded me why it was important to kind of go through the struggles that you go through uh, when you are kind of culturally diverse and perhaps the life that you're living isn't the life that your parents thought that you would have and you're kind of navigating all of that. It was such a beacon for me at the time. And I imagine that um, it is for every email that you receive, there's, you know, 50 or 100 that you don't receive from people who have read your work and, and have that same sense of connection. So that must be very, very rewarding. Oh, thanks so much, Zoya. Thank you. Coming from you as well, because I, I read all your work, including your reviews, which <laughs> which are wonderful. And I love how you um you make a point to review diverse books. So whenever I see a diverse book, I think I wonder if Zoya's reviewed this one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I know there's an element where you do kind of want to pay it forward. Um, as well, is that something that you think about now that you're, like you said, twenty years into your career? You've got oh, quite course, an established yeah. canon. <laughs> Do you think about how that can impact, you know, writers coming up after you and, and are there any opportunities that you've had where you've thought this is really one of those moments where, you know, 10 years ago I would never have imagined that I'd be able to do this um, for someone else? Oh, all the writers coming up after me are so much bolder and braver and take bigger risks so I'm in awe of them so yeah I think it's incredible um I I think I've been gifted in in terms of my most recent book Sawyer talking about paying it forward I think I've received more gifts than I've ever paid because my book was reviewed by a lot of women of color Muslim authors you know um in fact I think 90 percent of the reviewers who reviewed my book were women of color 
And I thought, wow, this is so different from the first book. And this is a big difference it makes to have people like you reviewing our books, Zoya, is that when Unpolished Gem came out 15 years ago, um, I got asked a lot of questions about the cultural aspect of the book, you know, how funny that we ate certain things. Not racist questions, just interested questions. And um, all the way from Townsville, places like that, and, and I'd be happy to answer them. But with this new book, my interviewers, because they've been women like yourself, they just delve straight into the heart of the characters and the psychology. And I think this is so good. It's a shortcut straight to the heart of what I was trying to get at. So that, that's why I write for the readers I do. And, and that's why it makes such a huge difference. You have such a depth of conversation like we're having now with a um with an interviewer who knows the shortcuts. I hope that makes sense. Does Absolutely. That make- <laughs> I actually had a similar, when I was doing the book tour for my book back in the day, I actually had one request. And I remember at the time thinking, I don't want to be a diva. I don't want to ask for too much. You know, it's so nice that the publisher's organizing all of these marketing and publicity opportunities. I but- can't imagine you being a diva, Zoya. <laughs> it's not well, because I'm always worried about being seen to be a diva. I'm the youngest <laughs> child, Alice. So there have definitely been times in my life where I've been the diva because I had an easier trot than my three siblings um, as the youngest. <laughs> But my one request was for every book review, um, uh, interview rather, or launch that we organised, I wanted my interviewer to be a person of colour. And the reason why I requested that wasn't because I thought that white interviewers or readers or, um, you know, interlocutors wouldn't be able to understand the book. It was that there's an unspoken permission that I think happens between two people of colour talking about race, which is that understanding that, you know, you know what I'm talking about and therefore you can ask me questions that might make someone else worry that they're taking a step too far or they're being insensitive or they shouldn't talk about that. And I think to me, the conversations that I want to have about this stuff, I want to go a bit deeper than the surface level. Um, And that's something that's made possible when you have you know, another person who might maybe share some of the experiences that you share, even if they're, you know, quite different in the, in the content of it, the heart of the issue is still the same. So I do think it's an important thing, you know, the more diversity that we have across the industry, um, the more that we can tell these amazing stories and do them justice. Oh, that's so true. So if you worded it um, more perfectly than I ever could, it's true, isn't it? When you have two diverse writers, um, the conversation is richer. It's like when you hear two black writers talk about racism, it's it's a very different um, texture to a white and a black author where you can tell the right white interviewer is, is trying really hard but not quite getting there because they're, they're fearful. You know? Yeah. And yeah, so, and I don't fault any of them, but it's it's also says something about, how how um the industry is so progressed because when I started out, I, I if I made that request, I don't think practically people could have um, done it justice. People couldn't have found that many interviewers of colour, you know, or journalists for me to to even have a conversation with. Yeah, I think it's been such a result of such targeted and genuine effort and work from both within the industry, but also from writers, I think, um, in kind of really pursuing the opportunities. But I think there are some organizations that are just doing amazing work um, in this space, like organizations like Westwards and, um, of course, the Stella doing everything that they've done. When you were talking earlier about having so many women of color review your book, I was remembering the very first Stella count 
um, you know, all those years ago, over a decade ago, um, where they revealed just how skewed, um, you know, space was in major dailies and the review sections towards white men of a certain age. Um, <laughs> and of course, if that's who's, um, you know, defining what is or isn't considered to have merit when it comes to literature, it really does change the way that the industry can then, um, you know, prioritize diversity or, or look at different types of stories. So you're right, we've come a really long way um, and it is really exciting. Now, there was something that you said a moment ago that made me think back to the very beginning of our conversation where you were talking about how when it comes to what you write and who you write for, you're not really, um, it's not something that you feel worried about or that you agonize over because you know who you want to write for and you know the stories that you want to tell and you're able to do that. And part of me wondered, is having another source of income and having a kind of stable career elsewhere one of the things that gives you that freedom? Because you don't have to take every commission or or every opportunity to make a few dollars. You can very much focus on the stories that you want to tell. Is that something that um, that you find that you're kind of mentally more free to pursue the stories that you want to tell because you don't have to think, well, will this one make money? Am I going to be able to justify the time I spend on this? Um, you know, will it get published, et cetera? Yeah, I, th- you've, I think you're spot on there, So I've always, always had this other, um, other job uh, doing the legal research, uh, which prevents me from writing about certain things, which readers probably don't want me to you know, don't want to read about anyhow employment law, the fair work. That's fine. I never talk about that because uh, <laughs> I'm part of the, it's a public service uh, job, which I, I'm very grateful for and enjoy quite a lot, actually. Um, but that's true. It's given me independent freedom as a writer, as a journalist, um, and I can take my time with each book. So even, even the last book, which is a, quite a short book, you can read it in one sitting, took me four years uh, and, and that was just because I had all these babies, <laughs> you know, but I can write what I want. I don't have to sell a certain number of books or um, sign on to two or three volumes or anything like that. Yeah. I guess it also means that you don't have to uh, take a lot of smaller commissions or write shorter pieces or um, diversify your output in that way. Um, I certainly feel like a lot of the writers that I know who make their entire living from their writing and that work, the majority of the work that they do that actually gives them um, income are things like judging prizes, editing things, speaking on panels, um, all of that stuff that happens around writing. And, you know, I work full time um, and, and I write on the side, but I actually feel like I have more energy to do my creative work um, because my work work isn't you know, seeping up the same type of energy that, that that creative work takes. I can very much kind of separate the two um, and have that energy left over when I come home or in the mornings before I go to work or on the weekends to, to pursue the things that I want to pursue. When you have children, I imagine that's a little bit harder. Um, but I think the thing that interests me about that is more how you justify time because I feel as though, and perhaps this is a very gendered um, question, and it, and it probably is, I don't imagine that too many male authors get asked this, but do you feel like you have to justify the time that you spend on creative projects, particularly when you, you know, might be at the very beginning of a project and you don't know if it's going to, you know, get published or, or get to that next stage? Um, oh, I, do, I don't know. Like I, I've got a supportive family, <laughs> so, you know, I, I 
I do I don't have that much time to create so it takes me a long time um, I guess if I had a, a good two months maybe I, I could have done a lot of my latest book 100 that you know but it took me four years just because I only have snippets of time and you can tell by the sentences they're a lot shorter than my sentences used to be because I constantly get interrupted in the middle of sentences by kids but what you say is interesting Zoya because you mentioned the other parts of the writing world the judging of competitions and I've been on maternity leave in the past five years for um, a, a large number of that uh, just because I've had all these babies so when the pay runs out in maternity leave I have done smaller commissions so I, I know what it's like um, but just the sheer amount of time that's wasted by writers who have all the time in the world um, is sometimes quite gendered, yeah? So sometimes if you're judging something and writers don't have to look after children and they don't have, they'll make themselves a cup of tea and you've got your kids on the floor screaming, you've got to pick one up and they don't understand, <laughs> you know? So, uh if you have all the time in the world, you don't understand writers who don't have that much time. You just think they're stressed all the time or, you know, or they're anal or, <laughs> yes. Isn't that fascinating? I actually um, judged something a while ago. It was like a, um, a development program for emerging writers and um, several of the writers who are on the kind of co-judging panel were um, single mothers. Who oh, they're were so good. They're the most efficient people in the world, aren't they? Well, this is the thing that really got me was they were so, they, it was lockdown. So everyone was, uh -huh. every, almost everyone in Australia was in some form of lockdown. Certainly these, um, these fellow writers were, and they had their kids and we were doing it all via Zoom. Whereas in, in another time we would have been in person, but we couldn't do that. And then we'd get to the actual meat of the discussion and I'd be thinking to myself, okay, we've got an hour to do this. I just want to make sure that we don't take up too much time and, you know, I totally understand if they haven't had a chance to look at their manuscripts that deeply. But, my gosh, these women would show up and they would have, like, thoroughly read every manuscript and have really insightful views on everything. I felt quite bad because I felt like comparatively I'd been like skimming, skimming the surface of what they were seeing in these works. And I remember thinking to myself, it's, I mean, it's that old um, adage of if you need something done, ask a busy person to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, it definitely made me think, you know, um, I contemplate having a child and I worry that I'll lose the ability to do um, all the juggling that I do at the moment between my paid work and, um, and my writing and, you know, various other things. But then I, I look at people like you and these women that I got to work with and I think, well, actually, probably the opposite happens. Um, you become so much more efficient at stopping and starting, um, doing bits and pieces when you can and still being able to pick up the the thread of what you're writing when you come back to it. So it's quite a skill. Oh, you'll have that skill in spades, Zoya, when you become a mother. You know, I, I have no doubt that you'll be excellent at it. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Maybe those mothers um, really... <laughs> like <laughs> the writing life sounds glamorous and the writing life with kids um you know it sounds so impressive that I'm juggling all this stuff but there are huge tracts of board like you're awake at 3 a.m because you're breastfeeding a kid that takes 45 minutes so you you really savor intellectual life you're like I've got this manuscript to read and judge people still appreciate me as a brain instead of a body I hope that makes sense or as a person that's needed all the time for what you can do physically because having kids is very physical um 
that they still appreciate your intellect. Yeah, <laughs> you know? definitely. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. I remember asking a um, a woman who's a journalist, a very well-known journalist, who had recently gone on mat leave, and I asked her to speak at an event that my work was running, and she sent me a special message later to say, can I just say, I've been going through this whole, like, you know, the first three months of having a newborn, it's really stressful, um, and I've had to take maternity leave, but I'm a freelancer, so me taking maternity leave is me just not having income for other than the government support payments for however long and getting your email made me feel like she was like I cried because it reminded it made me feel like maybe people will remember me on the other side of this and <laughs> and I I was sitting there going oh I felt so bad for interrupting you while you're on maternity leave and and coming to you with this you know just this little event and um you know bothering you when you're doing the important work of taking care of your child but of course there's a flip side of that as well isn't there where you you need to feel connected to the world um even as you're you know absorbed by by your child and your newborn so yeah i imagine that i will be climbing the walls if i um am in that period myself of of a new child and i'll be wanting all of the distractions as well so it's good to know that that appetite for um for the work doesn't really go away no, I think you'll still have it. And to all the listeners, you know, keep Zoya in mind when she's on maternity leave. She's going to be excellent at what she does even then. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Alice. I always <laughs> joke that maternity leave will be when I get to all those other projects that I haven't had a chance to do. And then people say, you'll, you'll have a child, Zoya. That'll be the project. <laughs> and sometimes they sleep for quite a long time, three-hour stretches, and, and you give, like, you know, you don't have any other deadlines. So you actually give yourself those three hours without any other pressing, urgent assignments or, yeah, so. I feel like you've been quite nimble in moving within both the fiction and nonfiction worlds. So you wrote Lorinda and then you released a collection of essays and then you wrote fiction with 100 days. In what ways do writing fiction and nonfiction feel similar or perhaps different to you? Most of my fiction is nonfiction, but the thing is, when I so, so um, yeah, most of my fiction is based on <laughs> little true events that actually happen. Um, so when I write nonfiction, I try and see if I can make it read as if it were fiction, as if someone picked this up and say, "Oh, wow, this really couldn't have happened." And the opposite with fiction, you've got to make because I write realist realist fiction. I don't write science fiction. Got to make my characters seem convincing enough that you'd think oh these are people I could meet in real life so yeah <laughs> and fortunately I, I draw a lot on real life because um, I'm not skilled enough to <laughs> do the stuff that Zoya does or Xu Ling does that's that's just something I really admire um, I don't have the skills for to incorporate culture also into the writing and yeah I, I don't have that knack <laughs> Oh, the other thing I can't do is sex either. So it, I think it might even be a generational thing. I don't know. I didn't grow up with the um, even uh, – and I can't do social media in, in my writing. And, and you guys do it so effortlessly, hey? I, I can't – even incorporating text messages in a book, I can't do it without sounding like I'm pretending, you know? <laughs> I love that. I can't write sex either, Alice. I feel like every time I, I need to incorporate a sex scene, I can just feel my father standing behind me. Like, <laughs> can't do it. Oh, I love it, Zoya. I, lo I love this, like that we both share this um, kind of, it's not prudishness. I think it's an innocence. I, I 
yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing. You don't have to write about explicit sex. I think it is also kind of a cultural thing for me in that I feel it would feel immodest yes, to, to talk yeah. about it publicly. But then at the same time, like in the book that I have coming out in 2023, <gasps> there's like one sex scene that's very <laughs> oblique. But even in like rewriting that, I was like, like I almost want to avert my gaze from the page to be like, oh, this <laughs> I love is so it. bad. Like I'm innocent, I swear. Love it. <laughs> oh, it's, have you ever read anything by Amal Awad? And yeah. her, the latest book, the, the things we cannot see in the lot. She's got a sex scene in that, but that's quite sweet, you know. It's almost old-fashioned in the door closes and yes. things, yeah. <laughs> it should just fade to black, I feel. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's, that's what Bollywood does is you only get, like, a kiss on the cheek and then it fades to oh. black. So that's what I've been raised as is my gold standard. Yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. And there's some great beauty in, in using your imagination, in that modesty as well, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so too. I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> Can I ask, you know, as we kind of wrap up this interview, I feel like I could talk to you for literally hours. And I have so many questions because I've looked up to you for so long, but also it's rare to be able to talk to someone who has had the length of um, of career that you have, but is still very much still, you know, at the peak um, period of production. Is there anything that you kind of feel like you've learnt over the years where when you were coming into the publishing cycle for this most recent book, 100 Days, that you thought, okay, well, I won't do things that way, or now I know um, X, Y, Z about that process of having the book come out in the world. I feel like a lot of emerging writers, one of the things that they um, talk to me about is how stressful that period is after the book is no longer in your hands. You know, you've done your final edits, it goes off to print next minute, it's out in the world and it's such a scary but exciting time. Is there anything that um, you now kind of approach it with? Like you're an old hand at this now, Alice, you've done it so many times. Do you kind of walk into that process of the book actually being released with any particular wisdom or, or knowledge that you wish you'd had the first time around? Um, I, I have experience and I guess I can't wish that I had it the first time around because the first time around, Zoya, you would have felt the same jitters I did, the same anxiety of letting it go, the same um, fear of an audience that you don't know. You don't know your audience as a debut author. You have no idea who will pick up your book and read it. And it's true with each successive book, like with each successive child, it gets easier because you know the routine, you know um, also even the timelines and what marketing and publicity uh, will happen. So it does get easier and it is easier to let go as well. With each new book, it becomes like, it is exactly like having children. You let them become independent so much earlier on, hey? <laughs> you know they'll take on a life of their own and you let them go easier. Um, so as a debut author, you can't um, learn yourself out, out of those anxieties. You have to experience them because that's exactly what every single debut author feels because they don't know their audience, yeah? <laughs> so I'm sorry I can't offer any comfort, but it does get easier. That is very comforting, actually. It's very reassuring <laughs> to know that actually it's part of the process of um, becoming wiser and more confident is having to feel those jitters the first time around. 
Yeah, yeah, it's part and parcel. (laughs) Thank you so much for being so generous with your insights, Alice. It's such a pleasure to be able to chat and also to have read your work again in preparing for um, for this conversation as well. It's been a wonderful time to just immerse myself in your writing. Thank you so much, Zoya. I could talk for hours, but it's a pleasure being on your show. Thank you for asking me. Alice Pung is the author of 100 Days, published by Black Ink. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo, Camilla Hannon, and Alison Chan. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Melanie Tate. I'm Zoya Patel. Thanks for listening to Book It In. We'll be back with another new episode next week. And until then, happy reading. Happy reading.